You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, I talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Cordell Bank is located just offshore of the KWMR listening radius off the Marin-Sonoma coast and is a thriving ecosystem with ocean life above and below the surface. And from what I hear locally lately, there are many, many, many whales offshore right now and is a great time to go whale watching in the greater Farallons and Cordell Bank sanctuaries. There's lots of whales around, so if you want to go see whales, now's the time to go. So I've got two topics lined up for you today. We'll be talking about uh, the proposed Iron Ranger stations for Sonoma Coast beaches with C. Higgins of the Sonoma County Chapter of the Surfrider Foundation. And on the second half of the show, we'll be discussing microbeads and research and the efforts the nonprofit group Five Gyres is leading with guest Lisa Boyle, Policy Director with Five Gyres. So lots to talk about. Stick with us. Thanks for tuning in. On the line with me, I have C. Higgins. And uh, C., you're live on the air. Are you with us? Yes, I am. Thanks Good for, afternoon. Thanks for joining me. So C. is an environmental policy and volunteer coordinator with the Sonoma Coast chapter of the Surfrider Foundation. And C. has been working with um, locals and the Surfrider Agency on an issue that has been in the news for a couple of years now about proposing to put in fee collection stations on the Sonoma Coast. So, C, can you give us just a little bit of background about when this proposal was put out and, and the extent for which it is proposed for? Yeah, of course. Um, the initial proposal began several years ago, and let me discuss the proposal. Um, it is to put 15 collection stations along the Sonoma Coast in parking areas that have historically been free parking areas uh, along Highway 1. Um, State Parks manages these areas on our coastline. The Sonoma Coast is about mm, 70, 75 miles, and State Parks manages over half of that coastline. And so these are pay stations that are to be put in to collect fees in order to park and access the beaches on the Sonoma Coast that are currently free. Initially, state parks began by just filing a categorical exemption, which was to just place these fee station collection boxes in these parking areas. And Sonoma Coast Surfrider felt that this wasn't just about, you know, a construction of these boxes. This was about a change in use, in public access to our coast. So we fought and asked that there be a review process in order to see how these fee collection devices would impact public access and also impact the environment 
on the Sonoma Coast. So about three years ago when they applied for this category exemption, we thought that there'd be a county review process, the CDP, Coastal Development Permit, so that the public could get involved and that there would be an elaborate review process to see how these impacts, um, what these impacts would be. And so that process began with the county in the Permit Resources Management Department. And through that process, the county rejected the proposal from state parks as they felt that it would, as it was currently written, it would have too large of an impact on public access and that there were many factors that had not been accounted for in the proposal by state parks. So once that permit was denied by the county, the county of Sonoma, um, the county kind of left open for state parks an opportunity to modify the proposal, to adjust it, to look at different ways to collect fees on the Sonoma coast or to raise revenue for state parks because, you know, we're all under the same understanding that we need to be able to support our state parks here on the Sonoma coast. But instead, um, state parks chose to appeal denial to the California Coastal Commission. And so that is where we are right now is looking at this proposal with the California Coastal Commission having jurisdiction rather than the county. Interesting. And I guess I don't know enough about the overall jurisdiction of the California Coastal Commission versus county oversight in these matters. But Right. That's a really good question. Because with the Coastal Act, which was, you know, from the early 70s in California, the public fought to have public access to the commons, to the coastline. And from that, we have our California Coastal Commission that now requires any development on the coast you have to get a coastal development permit so that you can review any kind of impacts to the environment or to public access. But the Coastal Commission has yielded jurisdiction to decide these matters to local jurisdictions who have what they call a certified local coastal plan, which is what we do have here in Sonoma County. We have one of the original um, certified LCPs. So when State Parks was looking for this, rather than applying with the Coastal Commission directly, which does occur in other areas in California that don't have a certified LCP, they had to instead apply with the county to have the review process done here locally. And so that's why we had that process here in Sonoma County, and that's why it was denied first here. But naturally, the Coastal Commission has, you know, seniority jurisdiction, and so if the a particular... Um, applicant is dissatisfied with the local process, they can then ask for an appeal with the Coastal Commission. So this is a little confusing. It's, yes, it is. <laughs> if a county has a uh, coastal plan yes. that's updated, yes. a permit or proposal can go to the county first. And then... Exactly. And normally that's where it ends because of the fact that the Coastal Commission has yielded jurisdiction to the county. Got it. This is a very rare circumstance in front of the commission in which the commission actually took jurisdiction away from a county with a certified LCP. And that was done at a hearing in April in Marin County in which the appeal was basically granted and that the Coastal Commission would take jurisdiction away from the county on deciding this issue for the Sonoma Coast. So where does it reside at this point today? 
Right now it is residing and it's going through the review process with the Coastal Commission. So it is very timely that you're bringing this issue to the public because everyone now has an opportunity to speak their concerns to the Coastal Commission directly. At the hearing um, in April, it was a very close vote because, you know, the Coastal Commission naturally wants to honor a county's interpretation of its LCP that has been certified by the Commission. Um, and basically, as far as the reasons for denial, the Coastal Commission completely agreed that the county made the correct decision in denying the application. But what they looked at was that the fee issue for state parks and funding state parks has a statewide implication. And so that's why they took over jurisdiction, not necessarily because they disagreed with the county's decision, but they felt like this was something that had to be looked at on a statewide level. Because this could set a precedent for other counties throughout the state of California. Exactly. And that's why it's so important that it's done correctly here. And that's how Surfrider and other uh, environmental and coastal groups have become very active in the process and why the public needs to be very involved in the process because the precedent that's set here will extend to the entire California coastline. That's so interesting. And knowing that the California Coastal Commission was actually developed around wanting access to the coastline, this is kind of an interesting position that they're in and where they where they may fall. Yeah, there's been a lot of pressure on the commission from our current administration. There's There's been kind of a shift in how we view our public lands and our state parks to somehow be, um, and that could be a whole show in itself that parks are supposed to be um, revenue generating and self-sufficient. Um, and so uh, that's sort of been the trend. So there was a lot of pressure for the Coastal Commission to get involved in this particular proposal. And unfortunately, Sonoma County somehow became the crucible of this issue. So we're taking a lot of responsibility on, on how fees happen, where they should happen, um, when they should happen, how much they should be, et cetera. For folks just tuning in, I'm talking with C. Higgins, who's with the Sonoma Coast Chapter of the Surfrider, Surfrider Foundation, and we're talking about the proposal to install Iron Ranger stations, fee collection stations at currently free beaches along the Sonoma Coast. And honestly, as a Sonoma County resident, I view these beaches as just a real gift and treasure as a resident to go enjoy and appreciate the ocean and the coast with my family. It's it's interesting to think about having to pay for it. And yet I'm thinking also about, well, when you pay for something, you're supporting something as well. So what is what are some of the um maybe unintended consequences that could come with fees that we're not thinking about here? Well, I, I think it's also really important when you talk about enjoying the Sonoma Coast. I think there is this misconception that we don't currently pay here, that the entire coastline is free. Um, where we have amenities, where state parks have has amenities, for example, the Dunes, Bodega Dunes Campground, or Fort Ross, they do charge fees, and people pay fees happily to support the parks because there are amenities there. There's, you know, paved parking, there's flushing toilets, um, you know, trash collection, uh, trails to the beach, the difficulty with this particular proposal is that these locations, many of them, are just sort of roadside pull-out parking areas, mm. not paved, not ADA compliant, um, you know, at most maybe a pit toilet. 
um, and they are all parking areas along the narrow stretch of Highway 1. So we're looking at charging fees in a location where nowhere else in California are they currently charging fees. So um, that, that's why it, it is really important that we looked at what are the factors that you are paying for, what are you supporting, and also where are the fees going to be utilized. Um, is this something that's going to come back to the Sonoma Coast and help improve these facilities, or is this all going to be going into the general fund and supporting parks throughout the state? So we're kind of looking at all these different factors on where, how, when you charge fees. Because everyone feels like you do. You know, this is a precious resource. Um, this is a location where, you know, you have a lot of people, you know, inland communities that come out to the coast. It's already extremely expensive. You know, our Sonoma Coast is very unique in that you can only access it by vehicle. There is no mass transit available, no efficient mass transit. You can't walk to the beach. You have to drive here. So the only way you get here is with your vehicle. So you're already, you know, paying basically to come to the coast. And so once you're here, you know, that becomes something that affects a lot of people who could not afford to pay these fees in order to enjoy some of the coastline. And so, um, you know, how the, the socioeconomic as well as the environmental and the public uh, access impacts are all something we're trying to take into consideration as we look at how unique these would be on the Sonoma Coast. Is there a position by Surfrider to collect some fees, maybe at the high-use areas where there's flush toilets, or I'm not sure, I don't think there are already flush toilets, maybe they're all pit For toilets. none of the proposed locations do any, is there ADA compliance or any of those amenities where they do currently charge? Not a single one of the locations. Let me point out that the 15 locations cover the entire coastline, and if anybody is familiar with some of these locations, you know, they include Salmon Creek Beach, North and South, Portuguese Beach, Schoolhouse Beach, um, Campbell Cove, Bodega Head, and every single parking area at um, Goat Rock Beach as well, and then a location in Salt Point and Russian Gulch. So that's pretty much every single access point that exists. Um, one of the factors that I think is really important to consider is that we don't have very much safe beach access on the Sonoma Coast or very many safe beaches, you know, where there's sandy beaches and a trail and maybe a waiting opportunity. And so the problem with this proposal is that every safe location is slated for uh, a pay station. And our concern is that people are naturally going to try to gravitate towards area where they can continue to park for free. And the areas that have been left unmarked for a pay station are our much more dangerous beaches. Oh, absolutely. Um, I've seen some of those turnouts there. We've had a lot of rescues because of the dangerous conditions at those sites. So we're very concerned about Mm -hmm. if they're going to lock up all the safe beach access, that we're going to have an increase in rescues and that we have to look at what the cost of that would be as well. I mean, not just the, you know, the, the cost to human lives or human safety, but also to, you know, the local jurisdictions who would take on the cost of conducting those rescues. Absolutely. That I definitely see as an unintended consequence that would could be rather horrible in the end. And then the other unintended consequence is naturally, you know, people, there's, State Parks is trying to propose that, they should include in the alternative parking 
the roadside parking, you know, along Highway 1. And, you know, Surfrider does a lot of beach cleanups. We have a lot of presence on the beach. And when you have, uh, you know, a holiday or a lot of people coming to the beach, beautiful weather, and people park all along the roadsides, it's a very dangerous situation because you have people walking along, a, a, you know, a narrow stretch of Highway 1, um, you know, with cars zooming by at 55 miles an hour, and then you have on the other side of that, you know, a coastal bluff that drops 50 feet. So if what we're afraid of is, you know, if they have a parking area that has a single egress in and out, and that is a feed area, and then next to it you have all this roadside parking, um, you're going to have all this competition for people trying to access these free remaining three spots, and we are very concerned about, you know, the increase in public safety risk. Not only that, people then naturally begin to start forging trails, so um, volunteering trails. So rather than using the main trail from the feedlot, they just start, you know, climbing down the bluffs and whatever area they find a free place to park. So we're looking at sort of the environmental damage that would occur, too, from people just sort of forging trails and making access to the beach wherever they're able to find a free place to park. The existing lifeguards that are on that part of the coast, are those county lifeguards or state park lifeguards? They are state park lifeguards. And, you know, often you have one or two covering, you know, a 40-mile area of coast. So they they have a lot of work to yeah. do. Um, and, you know. I'm curious what their viewpoint is as state park employees and being the ones on the scene for the rescues that need to happen. and Well, I think that's a really good point. Um, there seems to be, and hopefully something State Parks is working on, kind of a disconnect b- between how the local jurisdiction feels about this issue and the concerns that they have being very familiar with what's happening on the coast with what the policy being set in Sacramento as far as, you know, we need to start making our parks revenue-generating parks. So... There is a bit of a disconnect, and part of this public process that we've fought for so hard with Surfrider is that these concerns, you know, that Sacramento and also the commissioners who are going to be making the decision become aware of, of what these impacts truly are. You know, this isn't so much about fee, no fee. It's about let's really look at the situation. Let's really look at each location and determine what all the factors are that we need to consider before deciding is this a good idea or not, and is it really going to raise the revenue that you think it's going to raise? I mean, part of the comparison is that there has to be a baseline. You have to determine how much these areas are currently being used, um, and then also what are the you know current environmental impacts without the fees, so that if they were to implement them, we could see if there was a comparison, because if it turns out to have a severe impact, the Coastal Commission does have the authority and the jurisdiction to then, you know, pull back the permit and say you can no longer charge the fees. I mean, that hasn't historically happened, but, I mean, it's a possibility. So it's really important that we establish baselines and determine what factors most affect this decision. Really interesting point that you say about the baseline, and I'm wondering if we have any information. I'm curious if the lifeguards take somewhat of a car count um, on their passes. I'm sure that's not high on their priority list when they're on duty looking for needed assistance that they mean to provide. But it seems like there must be some way to assess historic use of these areas. And do you know of any data sources where that would exist? Well, um, we are fighting that there is going to be a very careful calculation of 
baseline. I mean, that's one of the things that we are requiring or asking the Coastal Commission to, you know, make as part of one of the, the, the parameters of these permits. In other areas of California where the state parks has applied directly to the commission, the difference is that there were fees that already existed. So they were able to use the current parking structure, you know, the actual machine to actually make a baseline to count and then to see how adjustments to the fees, either increasing them or provide hourly rates, how that affected access. The problem here on the Sonoma Coast is that we, we don't have any kind of baseline. Mm-hmm. So we're asking for a very detailed plan by state parks, and they are in the process of trying to present that plan to the commission. So are they going to go out there with clipboards and count cars? Um, are they going to put strips across that look at you know people coming in and out? I mean, these are all things that are to be designed by state parks, and we're naturally asking that it be a very elaborate and and well-thought-out baseline plan. Definitely. Where, in terms of timing at this point, what is, is there a hearing coming up soon? And well, there's a few things that we're advocating for, uh, that Surfrider's advocating for. Um, state parks naturally, you know, wanting to earn revenue, they're, they're trying to push this through as fast as possible. Um, we're trying to slow it down a bit so that all of these factors can be accounted for. I mean, they originally at the hearing, they wanted to, in April, they wanted to have this back again in front of the commission in just a few months or by the end of the year. Um, and what we're asking for, and we're working with the county, you know, who still wants to stay involved in this process, that we actually conduct the hearing here in Sonoma County, that Sonoma County hosts the California Commission, um, Coastal Commission hearing, so that the people most affected will have an opportunity to attend the hearing. Mm-hmm. So we're working on the timeline it's unknown at this time when that's going to happen. But what people really need to realize is what affects the decision the most isn't so much the hearing, but the staff report that's written as a recommendation to the commissioners when they vote on the hearing. So the time is now for people to, you know, write letters to the commission, to email the commission, and let them know what factors they think should be considered in this determination, how they feel about this proposal, um, so that the commission staff will take that into account as they write their recommendation. The other thing that we are really focusing on doing is to have community forums, because, you know, the hearings are often during the day, and it's very difficult. You know, people that are most affected, they're working. They can't attend the hearing. So we're trying to conduct some community forums, here in Sonoma County, uh, you know, here on the coast and also as well in Santa Rosa, uh, possibly a location up north where all the different, you know, state parks, you know, comes to these different community forums, kind of presents their proposal and has an opportunity to hear from people. All the different environmental groups that feel affected have an opportunity to speak. And hopefully we come up with some kind of solution that everybody feels good about. You know, how do we support our parks but also maintain public access to our coast? The forums are being hosted by the Surfrider Foundation to provide an opportunity for dialogue. Is that what you're saying? For people to really understand the breadth of the issue and some possible solutions to what's being presented. Yeah, and to feel like they have a voice exactly in the process. So we're working on setting up some dates, hopefully in the fall, where we can have these forums and people can attend. But I really encourage people in the meantime 
to contact, and I have the contact information, to contact the Coastal Commission and, and, and state their opinion, you know, their concerns right now because it's important that they hear this now. Why don't you give that information because we just have a couple minutes left, and that's to... I'm going to give two different uh, informational sources. We have a website dedicated purely to this issue, and if people want to go on and research everything that's happened and all the different factors, they can go on to www.freerbeaches.org, and it's a really good informational site. It has the Coastal Commission report. It has the county... Um, denial and the reasons why it has the state parks proposal uh, of you know how and where they want to have these fees. So I highly encourage people to go to that site, freerbeaches.org, and then also to write to the Coastal Commission, and they can write directly to Ethan Levine, and that's E T H A N dot L A V I N E at coastal.ca.gov. Great. That's Ethan, E-T-H-A-N dot L-A-V-I-N-E at coastal.ca.gov. Exactly. Wonderful. Well, see, just uh, two minutes left here. Are there any last pieces you want to share with listeners about this proposal and what? Well, we are, you know, we're naturally, you know, because we are a grassroots organization, we're very concerned with how the public feels about this, and we want to make sure that we're advocating for the right thing always. And so, um, you know, we have a Facebook page, Sonoma Coast Surfrider, and you can contact us through our Facebook page. Unfortunately, our website's under construction. Um, but if they, you know, just to go ahead and, and, and talk to us about it, there's a lot of information on our Facebook page about this proposal, and we just sort of invite people you know, is there something we haven't thought of or, you know, what are your feelings? Just that they become involved in the process. This is their coast and this is their access to the coast. And so we want to be representing the community most affected. So please contact us. You know, we, we want to hear from you. Thank you. And are you involving other Surfrider chapters on this up and down the coast since ultimately well, now with the Coastal Commission? We're naturally concerned because, we, as we talked about, the precedential value of this. So, yes, we've worked with Marin Surfrider quite a bit um, and also Humboldt and um, Mendocino Surfrider who are concerned about this issue. And naturally, headquarters has been supporting us because the Surfrider you know, Foundation is primarily, or one of our big concerns is, preserving public access to the coast. So, yeah, we are statewide looking at this, but Sonoma County particularly focusing on it as it's a Sonoma County proposal. Great. Well, thank you so much, C, for providing such an overview and breadth of the history of this proposal and providing some resources for folks to get more information and to voice their opinion to the appropriate people. Uh, Just in review, www.freeourbeaches.org is a great source. And emailing Ethan Levine at the Coastal Commission um, is where you can directly voice an opinion about this issue. And I look forward to hearing about next steps with local forums and hearings. And um, thank you for your work with Surfrider to keep us ahead of this issue. Yeah, and we will definitely be publishing the dates of those community forums and anything that we do here we'll be getting out to the public. So so stay, stay in contact with us. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much, C, and appreciate you coming on the show today. Yeah, and thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk about this. Thank you, Jennifer. All right. Have a great afternoon. You too. Bye.
This is KWMR, 90.5 Point Reyes Station, 89.9 Bolinas, and 92.3 in the San Geronimo Valley. And you're listening to Ocean Currents. I'm Jennifer Stock. And in the first half, I was talking with C. Higgins of the Sonoma Coast Chapter of the Surfrider Foundation, talking about the proposed uh, fee collection stations that are being considered on the Sonoma Coast. And Currently, a hearing scheduled at some point, and it's a good time to communicate with the Coastal Commission and to learn more about the pros and cons of this issue at freeourbeaches.org. We're going to take a quick music break and come back and dive into the massive topic of the most tiniest little thing that's causing great harm, microbeads. We'll be back in just a little bit. Welcome back. You're tuned to Ocean Currents here on KWMR. My name's Jennifer Stuck. And on the telephone with me, I have Lisa Boyle with five gyres. Lisa, you're live off the air. Hello, Jennifer. Thanks so much for calling in. Last month we scheduled you, and I believe you were quite occupied with a gyre cruise getting ready or an expedition. Yes. And I want to hear all about that for that sure. Was an inc- Incredible experience. It was my first uh, research expedition with Five Gyres. I'm their policy director, and I'm a lawyer. So getting to be in the first-hand science part of the equation was new to me and really reinvigorated my work. That's wonderful. First, can you just give us a little background on what Five Gyres is? Is it the Five Gyres Institute? Right. Um, I feel really fortunate to kind of have been, I've been with NOAA for about 15 years now, and I got a chance to sail with Charlie Moore on the Algita to yeah. Guadalupe Island, and it was all before Five Gyres started, and I feel like I've been watching this infancy of this amazing organization form and right. take off. And so can you just give us some background about it and and what you've been up to. Absolutely. Well, Five Gyres is a really unique organization because we are dealing with plastic pollution from science through education to policy solutions. And we're unique because we're covering all the oceanic gyres, all the, the ocean plastic pollution on the globe, we've researched the ocean plastics in all the oceans of the world, and we are creating solutions, real-world solutions for that plastic pollution. The research that Five Gyres has done is very, very innovative in terms of doing a calculation about how much plastic pollution there is on the surface of the Earth's waters, and that got a lot of attention. Uh, we calculated that there is 5 trillion plastic pieces or more than 250,000 tons of plastic on the, the surfaces of the oceans, and that 95% of that plastic pollution is smaller than a grain of rice. So, And that's just the surface. And plastic pollution goes down through the water column to the benthos, settles on the bottom of the oceans. So we're dealing with a huge problem. And then uh, Bob Gyres did some really compelling research showing a particular product 
impact on our waters. Because when you're out in the middle of the ocean like I was with five gyres on my expedition and you were with with Algolita, um, you're you're straining the ocean and you're collecting tiny, tiny bits of microplastics that have broken down from larger pieces. And it's really hard to identify what country they've come from or, you know, what they originally were. But Five Gyres did did the same kind of research in the Great Lakes. And trawling in the Great Lakes, we found microbeads, these perfectly spherical round bits of plastic. And unlike the fragments in the middle of the ocean, these microbeads in the Great Lakes, we were able to trace to a particular product and and obviously to a particular um, set of countries because the Great Lakes are shared by Canada and the United States. And these perfectly round spheres we were able to show come from consumer personal care products. They are the exact same beads that are in face washes, body scrubs, toothpaste um, that we use as exfoliants. So it was pretty shocking to find that direct connection. And with that research that Five Gyres published along with uh, SUNY New York, uh, we, we showed the world how one personal care product can pollute. And, you know, it's really shocking that there are more than 3,000 products containing polyethylene or polypropylene beads, the little plastic beads, and each tube can contain more than 300,000 tiny microbeads of plastics. And we estimate that the, the amount of tonnage from these tiny, tiny plastic beads is about 38 tons annually, which is a lot considering how small they are. And when we were trolling, trawling the um, Great Lakes, there were 450,000 microbeads per square kilometer in Lake Erie. So that kind of shocking information when it was published led Five Gyres to want to come up with a solution. And we felt that the only appropriate solution in this case was a ban on these beads because they're not needed. There are natural alternatives. And this is a product with such poor design, such poor forethought, that you would put plastic so small into a product that it's designed to be washed off and for this product to go down the drain and immediately into our waterways. It can't be filtered by by sewage treatment because it's so small. So um, we wrote a ban, a model ban, that we published in the Tulane Environmental Law Journal edition on plastic pollution. And from there, it just traveled like wildfire. We, we dealt first with California and New York in um proposing legislation, and then it traveled across to many different states. Um, and the strongest, the best bill passed last week in Connecticut, which is just a fantastic bill, and we're so excited about that. And we're also working at the federal level, and we are 
still, we are halfway through in California. We passed through the assembly with um, Assembly Bill 888, which is authored by the wonderful Richard Bloom. And that just now we have to pass the Senate and get the governor's signature. And that will be a very strong bill as well. Uh, the bill 888 is what state again? That's California. Oh, that's California. Okay. Yeah. So the the one in Connecticut that passed last week is the strongest of the seven bills that have passed in individual states. So we're really excited about Connecticut. It's just wonderful. And we'd like the Connecticut or the California ban to to be the model for federal legislation. What makes it so strong compared to the others? Good question, Jennifer. What makes it so strong is that it does not have an exemption for bioplastics. Oh, good. Yes. And that is a real problem because uh, the plastics industry is really pushing to, to have bioplastics be the replacement for plastic microbeads in their um in their products. And this really just substitutes one bad thing for the other. And we've really learned that that you need to be so careful with legislation. For instance, we banned BPA and then BPS came out. So you need to write legislation that doesn't allow the substitution of one bad thing for another. And the problem with the bioplastics is we haven't seen yet something that that really biodegrades in the marine environment um, so that we can trust that this is a safe alternative. Interesting point there in terms of it's been bioplastics are a big, interesting topic overall with recycling and choices and right. um, just making the best choice, which is avoiding it altogether. There are so many substitutes. So that's yeah. interesting. Tell me about the timing of this bill um, authored by Richard Bloom. Well, the legislative session in California ends in early September, and we're making fast pace in California. Truthfully, the public reaction to getting all this information about plastic microbeads has been so tremendous that the manufacturers in general really want this resolved because they're taking a big hit at the marketplace. So I think we will get legislation in California, definitely this this legislative session. So we're just really trying to hold our ground not to allow dangerous exemptions. Uh, and an interesting thing that happened in Connecticut is that instead of allowing any exemptions, what Connecticut did was basically to, to enact the precautionary principle, which is a wonderful European principle that we definitely need more of here in America. It's really too bad that our toxics legislation doesn't have the precautionary principle, which is basically that you can't put something on the market until it's proven to be safe. And so what Connecticut did is it said, microbeads are banned. What we know to be microbeads, p- 
polyethylene, polypropylene are banned. If you come up with something, manufacturers, that you can show is safe, non-toxic, truly biodegrades in the marine environment, doesn't have a negative consequence, then you show that product and they chose an agency, the Connecticut Academy of Science and Engineering, to be their watchdog. And um, and if they can prove to that agency that they've come up with a viable alternative um, besides the many that already exist, like apricot shells, you know, rice husks, if you go to, to any natural food store or Whole Foods has banned microbeads, so every single exfoliant in Whole Foods is a natural exfoliant. Um, there are so many alternatives, but what Connecticut did is, in order to not impede innovation, they said, well, if you come up industry with something, some sort of alternative besides the natural ones, we'll give you a shot to prove it. And they chose an agency, and they're using the precautionary principle, which I think is is that's great, a good compromise. Well, and we know anything petroleum based is not a good compromise. Absolutely, and there there you get to the the basic basic root of this problem um, with plastic pollution in general, and why the the battle that we're facing is so. Why it's such a David and Goliath? Because the plastics industry is really the same as the petroleum and the natural gas industry. The lobbyists are the same because it's all fossil fuel based. And there is such a push to drill more to these incredibly destructive methods of extracting fossil fuels. Now we're getting oil and natural gas from tar sands, from fracking. We actually have a glut of um, natural gas here in America um, because of these these really intrusive methods of getting fossil fuels that the price of plastic, virgin plastic, is so low mm-hmm. that nobody even wants to recycle because who would want to pay to go through that process when the virgin stuff is so cheap? So, so you know, our job in trying to pass legislation for safer, safer alternatives to single-use plastics is really made harder by this, this incredible rush to extract fossil fuels. And you can see one example, California on July 1st, we were supposed to have a plastic bag ban, but we don't have it. Why? Because the plastic bag industry, which is plastic in general, which is fossil fossil fuels, took our law signed by the governor of the state of California that banned plastic bags and paid to get it on the November ballot as an initiative to recall our law. Mm, geez. So it was supposed to be in effect on, on July 1st, but now we have to wait till November and re-vote on a law that was signed by the governor. And that's all the pressure of cheap, 
cheap, cheap fossil fuels and plastic. Yeah, the roots go pretty deep on this issue. I wanted to go back to one of your, you're talking about the industry, the manufacturers really want to have this resolved. And from what I understand, I think it was Johnson & Johnson agreed to ban the bead as a manufacturer without any law by a certain date. But then recently... Was it? Were they proposing a bioplastic alternative, or what was that all about? Uh, well, this is this is an example of of kind of greenwashing. Johnson and Johnson's was one of the big manufacturers that said, "Okay, because they were publicly humiliated, we're going to get rid of microbeads by this date." But then, when in California we stuck to our guns and said, we're going to have this law without the loopholes that have occurred in other states like Illinois, that you could drive a truck through this loophole with just about anything. And so we said, nope, we're not going to have any loopholes in California. And then J&J came out against the California bill, uh, Assembly Bill 888. They criticized us in the um, New York Times and saying that we were opposed to innovation, which is not true. But but basically what they're trying to do is to um, substitute their old plastic with new plastic. And we just will not allow that to happen. And so I'm really given a tremendous amount of hope by the Connecticut ban that that's really good, and we're going to stick to our guns in California. And you know, even even when one state does something really progressive, like Connecticut has, it has an industry-wide impact because these products are sold in every state. So if one state can say we're not going to allow your plastic crud in in products in our state then it really forces industry to reformulate. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, personal choices. And you were mentioning about how many products carry this. And, you know, I've been following this for a long time, and we didn't have a lot of microbeads in our in our uh, bathroom closet until I realized our toothpaste had it, the toothpaste oh. that my yeah. dentist gave it gave us. Which I immediately... It's horrible. I just felt horrible throwing this thing in the trash, but I realized I'm not using these anymore, and I'm actually going to talk to my dentist next time there about it, because I understand that even the dental industry, or dentists even started seeing plastic microbeads in people's gums, and yeah. it became it's like a health issue on top of an yeah. ocean issue. But are there specific sources you recommend people to go to to learn about what products are good, no microbeads, um, or any general guidelines that people should look for on ingredients? Yes, definitely. Well, on the back of any product, when you see microbeads, some actually say that. I haven't seen that because I've actually looked. (laughs) There are some that actually say (laughs) microbeads, but also polyethylene or polypropylene. Those are the two sources of plastics that are now currently being used. So that would be PPE and PP, polyethylene, polypropylene, PPP. PE and PP. PE and PP, okay. And, you know, they'll, they'll spell it out, polyethylene or polypropylene. And um, 
I think that that there are many good places to go to get educated. I would first definitely recommend um, our listeners to go to the fivegyres.org website because we have a whole page about this issue and, of course, a petition to sign and more information. But also you can go to Environmental Working Groups, Skin Deep, that has a whole section on cosmetics. So, so you can check out all the ingredients in your cosmetics. But, you know, I have found that, well, Five Dryers partnered with Whole Foods and Whole Foods has removed microbeads from their, all their stores. So, so you can feel safe going there. But, uh, also it's, it's amazing to me how much information there is on the internet now. I was just looking for natural beauty blogs and, and I, I found 50 incredible ones. So really, um, researching natural beauty blogs is a good <laughs> way to go. And we have, we have something we'd love for people to do when they do buy their, their non microbead products. For instance, Lush has this great product with, they're giving 50% to Bob Gyres called Life's the Beach. And it's. Lisa, I hate to interrupt, but we have about a minute and a half left. Oh. So I want to hear what you have to say and then we're going to have to wrap it up. Okay. Um, so if you can use these, get these natural products, and then then take a picture and put it on Instagram or Twitter with the hashtag ban the bead. We're collecting images of people with their natural alternatives. Oh, that's great. That's a neat social media campaign. Yeah. Very good. Well we will def I will definitely participate in that because we just uh, made a toothpaste change in our family. But I just want to say, first of all, thank you for coming on to tell us about what's happening. And um, best place to go is fivegyres.org for more information and to follow the policy and, and proposals that are coming through. And to sign uh, the petition to get a ban in your state. Fantastic. And I also know you have a great blog that is kept up about all the other research efforts and the collaborators that Five Jars is bringing in. And I wish we could talk more about the recent expedition. I know Jack Johnson was there. Yeah, it was really great. Such an ocean hero for us. And I just want to say thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Jennifer. That was the most fun, fastest 30 minutes I've ever spent. <laughs> well, we could probably talk longer. It's a passionate <laughs> topic of mine. <laughs> but thanks again. Okay. And uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye. We've just been talking with Lisa Boyle from Five Jars Institute and discussing the issue with microbeads that are um, in the environment, in the Great Lakes, in the ocean, and the work that Five Jars is doing to ban the bead as the safest thing to do to prevent these from getting into the ocean. So you can check out fivegyres.org for more information about um, following the legislation efforts and also best practices and products and the things that you can buy. Very important. These little actions add up. We are just about at the end of the time here for the show, but I just wanted to leave two announcements with you, and that is thinking about petroleum and extraction. We have a big celebration here happening on the coast with a ban of oil and gas with the expansion of the Gulf of the Farallones and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which is now official. 
And we celebrated this past week or two weeks ago, June 27th, up on the north coast. The expansion of the Gulf of the Farallons goes all the way up to just point, uh, north of Point Arena. And with this expansion, uh, the Gulf of the Farallons is now called Greater Farallons to address the whole rocky coast up and down from where it starts in Marin County all the way up to southern Mendocino County. So that is a celebration we're really thrilled about to um, expand the sanctuaries with its one, number one uh, uh, regulation that really helps protect our coast, and that's a ban of oil and gas extraction. So something to celebrate there. And also, I wanted to let you know the traveling photo exhibit of Cordell Bank and its amazing ocean wonders is on exhibit at the Marin Civic Center uh, during business hours, Monday through Friday. And we'll have a reception August 25th, 4 to 6 p.m., and it's free. There'll be some light food and some sanctuary staff will be there to talk about what we're up to, to talk about the expansion. And if you've been wanting to check out the show, you can bring some friends and come on over to the Marin Civic Center and August 25th and check out that show. Next month in Point Reyes, the Point Reyes Books uh, is hosting a wonderful author, Wallace J. Nichols, who is the author of Blue Mind, the surprising science that shows how being near, in, or under the water can make you happier, healthier, and more connected and better at what you do. He'll be in conversation with Jaimala Yogis, a multi multidisciplinary writer and teacher. And this is on August 22nd at the Dance Palace. So you can check out pointraisebooks.com for their information about that talk on August 22nd. And I hope to talk with Jay prior for um, Ocean Currents. We'll see. We haven't secured that yet. It's pointraisebooks.com for more information. Thank you so much for tuning in today to a very full show on Ocean Currents. And I want to let you know that every single show is saved as a podcast in iTunes, and you can just search Ocean Currents in iTunes to find that, or come to the Cordell Bank website, cordellbank.noaa.gov, to get past episodes. Thanks again for tuning in to Ocean Currents. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Dot gov.